This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 211, sequels. I am Hal Hammond, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Sequels are a mixed bag. Sometimes they celebrate or even improve upon the original. Sometimes they make us wish someone had just left well enough alone. This week we will discuss the purpose of sequels in the Bible and how we can make the most of them, the war we fought because we didn't fight the previous one well enough, the upcoming Indiana Jones film and why I'm nervous about it, and the board game sequel that improved our gaming experience by robbing me of victories. We'll start with what I've been preaching. The Bible has three true sequels among its 66 component books. I exclude books such as Acts and 1st and 2nd Kings, which are really just the rest of the story told in Luke and 1st and 2nd Samuel, respectively. And I also exclude 2nd and 3rd John, which have no obvious contextual connection to John's first epistle. You may choose different criteria, and that's fine. But since this is my podcast, I'll be defining the terms. And as I define the sequel, the only true examples are 2nd Corinthians, 2nd Thessalonians, and 2nd Peter. Each of them illustrates an important component part of a sequel. 2 Corinthians answers the question of what comes next. In no way is it required for a proper understanding of 1 Corinthians, but it does put some of its lessons into a bit of context. We return to the man who was caught up in fornication and delivered by Paul to Satan in 1 Corinthians 5. In a manner so subtle that one might miss the point entirely, Paul alludes to the news that the man had in fact repented of his sin. In far less space than he required to condemn the sinner, Paul urges the church in 2 Corinthians 2 to reaffirm their love for the prodigal who has returned. He also returns to the topic of the collection being taken up to benefit needy Jewish saints. The reverse approach is shown here. He only needed four verses in 1 Corinthians 16 to require this gesture of benevolence. He takes all of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to sing the praises of the churches that had gone above and beyond their ability to show grace to their brethren and not so subtly urge the Corinthians to follow through with their own commitment. 2 Corinthians reminds us a bit of the Nehemiah story. Nehemiah arrived on the scene in Jerusalem, faced horrific circumstances, and put measures in place to address them, and then went back home. But he returned years later to make sure his measures were being implemented, and it's a good thing he did. The people had regressed considerably and were in need of a second wave of discipline. Parents, elders, and anyone else who's in a place of authority should take note. Laying down the law is of little use if you do not return later to enforce the law. 2 Thessalonians is about clarification. Sometimes, not necessarily through any fault of the speaker, the message gets muddied a bit. Paul had written the first time to assure them that their recently deceased brethren would not miss out on the resurrection, that the dead in Christ would receive the same blessings that would come to those who remained. But some had taken him to mean that the Lord would return literally at any moment. As a result, some had quit their jobs, thinking there was no point in spending their last hours in pointless pursuits. That was putting a burden on the others, who were essentially footing the bill for their lazy brethren while they waited for the Lord. Paul writes again to tell them, one, the Lord's return was not as imminent as they had believed, that certain events would have to transpire first, and two, they were obligated to take care of themselves for the duration instead of burdening others. Second Peter is largely about repetition and emphasis. He wrote extensively in the first letter about apostolic authority, 
using God's message to direct us in holy pathways, and being constantly on guard against false teachers from among our brethren. He returns to all three of these points in the second letter. In fact, he says as much in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He is essentially reminding them of the reminders he had given previously regarding the things they needed to remember. A critic might call that overly repetitive. But important lessons really cannot be repeated enough. And given that virtually every letter in the New Testament speaks directly to the issue of apostolic authority and the so-called brethren who did not submit to it, one more reminder couldn't possibly hurt. As if to prove the point, the church in the modern day struggles with this principle perhaps more than any other, our willingness or unwillingness to simply do what the Bible says because the Bible says it. I have a prediction for you. I predict that next Sunday, if God gives you the time and opportunity, you will hear the preacher deliver a lesson that sounds very much like the same bits of business you have heard a hundred times. Since you already know, or think you know, what he's going to say, you may convince yourself that your time is not being spent as well as it might be. If you find your thoughts going down that road, think about the Bible sequels. The Holy Spirit himself returned to certain topics for a variety of reasons. It might seem like plowing the same ground twice, or two dozen times, or two thousand times. But I will virtually guarantee you this, something will be said that shines new light on an old principle. You will be able to use that message to draw closer to God, just like you did with all the others. And if that doesn't happen, if the lesson is literally nothing but a rehashing of what you've heard before, it's probably a point that deserves rehashing. This is what I've been reading. The United States of America declared war for the first time in 1812. The conflict that resulted has historically been known as, wait for it, the War of 1812. It's the war that gave us the Star-Spangled Banner, written by Francis Scott Key at the Battle of Fort McHenry. It's the war that saw the capital city of Washington burned to the ground. And it gave us the legend of Dolly Madison, the wife of the president who risked her life to save the painting of George Washington that now hangs in the Lincoln bedroom, and who is now lovingly and appropriately memorialized in a long line of delicious snack foods. In Unshackling America, author Willard Stern Randall argues that the War of 1812 happened because we never really finished the American Revolution. America was independent, at least the Americans thought so. But the rest of the world couldn't afford to simply assume that that was true. Great Britain was still in the middle of an extended conflict with France, the one that we knew on this continent as the French and Indian War. 1812 was the year Napoleon invaded Russia, thinking it was the key to destroying the coalition of European powers, including Great Britain, that was limiting his efforts at expanding French control. Napoleon met with disaster that winter, but that did not mean the war was over. England needed all hands on deck, literally. And one tactic was to attack all American naval vessels, kidnap as many American sailors as possible, and impress them into the British Navy. In fairness to the British, a fair number of American sailors became American sailors by jumping off British ships in the first place. And in fairness to those sailors, go back and listen to my thoughts on Mutiny on the Bounty in episodes 142 and 143. The British Navy was not a happy place to be back then, but I digress. The British refused to accept the results of the revolution. 
America was neck deep in debt from the revolution and unable or unwilling to staff a standing army. France could not afford to be too favorably disposed to the Americans for fear of angering the British. And of course, there was the whole thing about no colony ever having acquired independence from its mother country before. Bottom line, no one was really convinced America was its own country yet. It would take three more years of fighting before everyone involved decided it was better for everyone concerned that they should simply accept the new status quo and move on. It's easy to say now, with the benefit of two centuries of hindsight, that the war could have been and should have been avoided entirely. Ultimately, the Treaty of Ghent did not settle any of the real issues that brought on hostilities. The only thing that absolutely had to happen was no more war. With no one actually shooting at one another, and with more pressing business for both parties requiring their attention, the other bits of business settled themselves in surprisingly short order. But leaving one world and entering another is seldom a seamless process. We encounter the same issues when a child of the devil suddenly decides to embrace Jesus. The devil doesn't call a truce simply because the battle didn't go his way. He redoubles his efforts. The penitent adulterer of 2 Corinthians 2 came up in the previous segment, and he serves as a great example here as well. What might seem in the moment to be a colossal victory for Jesus can easily be turned into yet another war. Paul reminds us in verse 11 to remain vigilant against Satan's efforts at such times, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Simon the sorcerer was humbled enough to be baptized into Jesus, but the old self reared its head again in Acts 8.18 when he thought he could acquire apostolic power for himself with money. We cannot overestimate the significance of our choice to leave the domain of darkness and become adopted into the kingdom of God's Son, Colossians 1.13. But despite what you may hear in some quarters, once saved is not always saved. Listen again to the apostle in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Only by diligent effort on our part can we find the entrance into Jesus' eternal kingdom. If we don't achieve that goal, it won't matter how many years of so-called independence we enjoyed here on earth. This is what I've been hearing. Most of you are likely aware by now the fifth installment of the Indiana Jones saga is slated to come to theaters in May 2023. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Harrison Ford is reprising arguably his greatest role, much as he did a few years ago with Han Solo and Star Wars 7 The Force Awakens. I'm hopeful that this will be an improvement on that nightmarish debacle, but I'll admit I am skeptical. Phoebe Waller-Cates plays Indy's goddaughter in the new film. Her role beyond that depends somewhat on which version of the film you're looking at. Currently, it seems she plays the typical sidekick character so common in films that center around a larger-than-life central figure. She's there to help him tell his story. That seems right. After all, the film is named after Indiana Jones. Earlier on, though, her role was quite different. According to earlier trailers, released clips, and scuttlebutt from various sources attached to the project, the goddaughter character was a youthful version of Indy, intended specifically to make him look old, decrepit, and eminently replaceable. In fact, speaking to that last point, the original script had her going back in time and accidentally causing Indy's death, forcing her to take his place, and essentially becoming the only Indiana Jones to have ever existed. Yes, someone, somewhere, sometime, thought that was a good idea. 
This is a problem that has presented itself in several storylines that have stretched over multiple films through the last few decades, the Star Wars saga being the obvious example. When a new storyteller enters the picture, the temptation is to use the previously told story as a springboard for telling the new storyteller's own story, a story that may be diametrically opposed to the original story. That process leaves longtime fans dizzy at best, furious at worst. After seeing highly successful projects such as Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe go through absolutely disastrous reboots recently, one would think Hollywood executives would have learned the folly of their ways by now. But it may very well be that advancing their agendas is more important than actually making good films, or even making money. If we hear talk in five years about the need for Washington to bail out the entertainment industry, just like it did with banks and car companies, you can imagine how I will come down on the issue. What's worse than that, though, is the wholesale hijacking of Jesus' message of the kingdom. After three and a half years of pressing a spiritual agenda, after turning down one offer after another of an earthly kingdom, after telling Pilate hours before his death, my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus died, was buried, rose again on the third day, and sent his apostles out into the world to preach the same gospel, a gospel of salvation to everyone who believe, according to Romans 1.16. The world has never been the same since. A Bible is now in the hand of virtually every human who wants one. And people are lining up left and right to step all over Jesus' legacy so as to get a good foothold on their own personal, selfish aspirations. Such has always been the case. We are warned of such ones in Philippians 3.17-21. Paul calls such Christians enemies of the cause of Christ. On the surface, they may seem to be honoring the legacy of Jesus they inherited from Paul and the other apostles. Occasionally, they may say and do the right things. But in the end, they have no real spiritual investment in the one true gospel. Their Lord is their own bellies. Any commonality they may have with true believers is mere coincidence. And embracing that sort of message as a modern retelling or updated version of the old story is heresy, pure and simple. I mean what Paul calls strange doctrines in 1 Timothy 1.3. The contrary gospel that merits the term anathema for its advocates in Galatians one eight, If Dial of Destiny stands the Indiana Jones franchise on its head and you like it that way, that's your business. But keep your hands off the story of Jesus Christ. And don't give your fellowship to anyone who would have you think otherwise. This is what I've been playing. Way back in episode 105, I brought up Machi Koro, a Japanese-themed city-building card game that our family absolutely fell in love with. It's quick. It's easy to learn. It's easy to play. It's over in less than 30 minutes. What's not to like? Well, in the Hammonds family, only one thing was not to like. And that's the fact that I won the game about two-thirds of the time. I won't rehash why I was so successful. I'll just say a particular strategy presented itself, and I was the only one to avail myself of it. There was a perfectly obvious strategy to combat mine, and no one wanted to use it. Last week, I talked about games that were broken. Machikoro isn't broken. My family insisted on playing like it was broken and essentially handed me victory time after time. Well, if winning is the burden I must bear, so be it. A few years ago, Machikoro 2 came out, the sequel to the original. My family loved the original, and I hate spending money unnecessarily. Hal Hammond's famous tightwad back in Ready for More. 
but we decided to buy Machi Koro 2 anyway. And now the original is dead to us. Machi Koro 2 is a superior game in virtually every aspect. Again, I'll spare you the details. But if you're exploring the hobby and looking for a good lightweight starter game, skip the original, get the sequel. You're welcome. Really, the only downside is that my winning strategy from the original does not work in the sequel. Now, Tracy, Kyla, and I split the victories pretty evenly. I won't lie, I miss playing a game I fully expect to win. Those are few and far between. But the new game is better. The changes that made my strategy impossible forced me to think more, to tailor a plan to suit the opportunities in front of me. The actual gameplay is a more satisfying experience. And I've played games long enough to realize that a pleasant experience is far superior to a winning experience. I don't want to sound like winning doesn't matter to me, because it does. But spending quality time with my family is far more important. When it becomes about us instead of me, the experience immediately becomes far richer, far more satisfying. I would much prefer losing a game in an environment that promoted us than winning a game in an environment that promoted me. I preach this message in as many different ways as I can think of. Maybe one of them will sink in. The Lord's Church is not here to promote my welfare or yours. It is here to promote the cause of Jesus Christ. Self-serving Christians are out there, no doubt. Paul warns us about them in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-10. through 10. They are in it for number one, and Jesus is not number one. It doesn't always look like factiousness. Sometimes it's something as simple as insisting that no one sit in their pew, or that the thermostat be adjusted to suit their own preferences, or that only the good hymns be sung in worship. Take a wild guess as to who gets to decide which ones are the good ones. They think that way because, consciously or unconsciously, they think they are the ones being served, not God. It's pretty silly when you think about it that way, but I'm running out of other ways to look at it. I'm sure you have your personal preferences regarding spiritual matters. I have mine too. If you want to make yours known, please feel free, but extend to your brethren the same courtesy you're expecting from them. If you want them to yield to you from time to time, make sure you yield to them also. But more importantly than that, realize why you are part of the process. This is the Lord's day, not your day. This is the Lord's table, not your table. Getting your way is never a noble goal. This is why the New Testament contains absolutely no admonitions for you to develop a plan better than your brother's plan, and then make sure he realizes how right you are and gives you the credit. On the other hand, we find one command after another for us to love one another, submit to one another, honor one another, prefer one another. If you cultivate a spirit of support and cooperation in the church, if you reject the me-first attitude we see every day in Satan's world, you will find more satisfaction in your fellowship than you ever had by trying to force your way to the front of the line. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.